Welcome to the University of Oxford Mindfulness Center's weekly podcast. Today we have with us addiction psychiatrist Dr. Judson Brewer, who talks about how getting to know the patterns of our mind can help us navigate these uncertain times, and also about the importance of spreading kindness rather than anxiety and panic. Before I hand over to Judd, I just want to offer a brief landing practice to allow our nervous systems to settle. So for this brief practice, it doesn't really matter whether you're standing up, lying down, or sitting, as long as you can feel your feet, the heels of your feet resting on a surface. And letting your attention now drop all the way down into the feet and particularly noticing physical sensations arising in the heels of the feet from one moment to the next. Noticing the left heel pressed against ground or whatever surface is supporting it. Sensations in the right heel resting on ground or other surface. Just taking a moment to get curious and really explore how the heels feel in this moment. There might be sensations of touch or contact, temperature, tingling, numbness, throbbing, and whatever it is that you find, seeing if it's possible to allow it to be exactly as it is. Letting that tendency that we have to want things to be different to how they are rest for these few moments. The heels can be a great place to rest our attention in a way that helps settle the nervous system. And when you're ready, bringing this brief practice to a close. And before we hear Judd, Perhaps just taking a moment to stretch. Care for the body by standing up, stretching in whatever way feels supportive. So as I mentioned earlier, today's guest is Dr. Judson Brewer, who's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist based out of Brown University. And he's done a lot of really interesting research around mindfulness and addiction, particularly around eating, anxiety, and smoking. And he's also spent the past couple of weeks thinking about how mindfulness might support us through this pandemic. In the following, you will hear a recording of the live session that we had with Dr. Brewer and about 440 participants, including part of the Q&A that we had at the end. Here we go. As I go through this, invite us all to at moments drop into our direct experience and let this sink in so the way i've been thinking about this you know mindfulness may mean different things to different people but from a pragmatic standpoint i think of mindfulness as helping to bring awareness to our mental processes so we can really learn how our minds work only when we see this and see our minds from our own experience this really is the only time when we can understand how our minds work 
And at that point, we can then develop the wisdom to learn how to effectively work with our minds. So as a healthcare provider myself, you know, especially in the field of psychiatry, I find this really helpful to really understand how my, minds work, my mind works. If I can see how I'm getting caught up in reactivity or going on autopilot and just habitually acting out an old habit loop, I can more effectively step back and not reinforce these behaviors. Uh, it also helps me to be able to empathize with my patients so that we can develop a good, strong connection that helps us work together as a team to help them improve their mental health. As a neuroscientist, I've been spending yeah, decades studying how the mind works and really trying to develop targeted treatments to help. So I thought we could start maybe with a little bit of science, uh, just a little bit. You know, the most primitive parts of our brains are set up to help us survive. So we can call this maybe our old brain as a heuristic. And on top of this, we've kind of evolved a neocortex, which literally means, you know, new brain, neocortex. And this new brain helps us think and plan for the future. So how do these work together? You know, as an example, maybe if we step out in the street without looking, you know, both ways, we almost get hit by a car. We reflexively jump back onto the sidewalk and have a fear response that says, hey, you know, you could have gotten killed. So we learn to look both ways before crossing the street. This becomes so automatic that we don't have to think about it. It is our habit to look both ways before crossing the street. It's interesting because this learning process is so basic that even the most, uh, the simplest organisms known in, in science, the ones with the simplest nervous systems, for example, the sea slug, which only has 20,000 neurons, these organisms learn the same way as humans. You know, we, many of us have heard of this as positive or negative reinforcement. It's got three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So when we walk up to a street, we're triggered to look both ways and that behavior of looking both ways ends up um, rewarding us because we avoid getting hit. So this is, I think of this as survival 101. So on top of this uh, survival brain, we have this neocortex and the neocortex and the prefrontal cortex in particular helps us survive in a different way. It helps us think and plan for the future. Yet in order to work properly, the prefrontal cortex needs accurate information. Right now, our world has been really turned upside down. You know, with this new virus, we don't have much accurate information, whether it's about the virus itself or how socially distancing ourselves and staying home is going to affect our jobs, you know, the economy, and our personal lives. But that doesn't stop our thinking brain from trying to plan anyway. In the face of fear, that new brain starts spinning out in what-if scenarios. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? And similar to driving a car on sand and feeling those wheels start to slip, we gun the engine, only sinking ourselves in deeper. So here's the first take-home message. You know, fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. When our primitive brain um, is saddled with uncertainty, it tries to think its way out of the situation, but that actually just leads to anxiety. And when we get anxious, our thinking brain starts to go offline, making it even harder to think and plan. So now let's add in another piece to this, social contagion. Social contagion is simply the spread of affect or emotion from one person to another. And if you talk to someone on the phone, for example, you hear fear or anxiety in their voice, you might get anxious. If you see people panicking and buying all the toilet paper at a grocery store, for example, you might catch that social contagion and do the same, which spreads to the next person who walks in the store and sees you and so on and so on. So we can socially distance ourselves to keep from physically spreading a virus, for example, 
but someone can sneeze on your brain from halfway around the world. So social media makes emotions even more contagious than these physical pathogens because there are no physio, physio, nah, physical barriers to their spread. So that's take home message number two, anxiety plus social contagion can lead to panic. And this makes our thinking brains totally shut down. Uh, the definition of panic is, I'll just read it to you, sudden uncontrollable fear or anxiety often causing wildly unthinking behavior. And I'm sure we can all just think back to moments in the last couple of weeks where we've seen situations like this where people are spreading anxiety or spreading even spreading panic through social contagion unknowingly. It's not like they're doing this on purpose. If you add one more piece to this, the, the sense of scarcity, you add scarcity to anxiety, and that's where we get this run on toilet paper at the grocery store. I don't know how that became the meme, but I think that's, that's the representative piece that I've seen most often. So maybe we can just pause for a moment and do a, just a brief mindfulness practice together to let all of this sink in. Maybe taking a, a deep breath and being very conscious as we take that breath in. Notice what it's like to hold this breath for just a few seconds if we can. And then consciously letting it out. Maybe doing that twice more at our own pace. Just noticing what it's like to let that information settle into our bodies and minds and what it's like to have that grounding of simply being aware of our breath as well. So with that information, I thought I could continue a little bit and we can ask ourselves, you know, how can we use this information to better know how our minds work so we can work with them? So I thought we could now focus on uncertainty and then turn towards taking care of ourselves and others as the last piece. So plainly put, uncertainty doesn't feel good. In fact, our brains hate uncertainty. Maybe we can all see this in our own experience when there's something really uncertain. What does it feel like when there's something uncertain? It makes us pretty restless. You know, when there is something uncertain, we try to make it certain as fast as we can, our brain kicking into high gear. Even if something bad is going to happen, we'd rather know now rather than later. I was just reflecting on my own experience earlier today and just, you know, had this thought come up, well, you know, maybe it would be better to know what it was like for me to, to have, you know, this virus rather than not to, because I don't, you know, I don't know how my body would respond. It's a, it's a wildly, uh, admittedly strange thought, but that's what came through my head is, you know, my brain wants to know, you know, how, how well would I do with this virus? So I'm guessing we can all see this in our own, own experience. You know, when there's something uncertain, we really try to make it certain as fast as we can. Even, even if something you know, bad is going to happen, we'll, you know, we'd rather know now than later. 
Why? Because our brains need accurate information to plan. And this ac our brains urge us into action to get information. We scramble to get as much information as we can. And, you know, this can manifest in different ways. Perhaps we constantly check the news. Maybe we go on social media or maybe we talk to friends. And that urge to get information gets really itchy. You know, that itch is our brain saying, hey, I'm going to make your life pretty unpleasant until you get me what I need, more information. Now, when we don't have access to accurate information, like we're seeing somewhat now, or maybe things are changing very rapidly, which they certainly are right now, the unpleasantness of that itch often gets us to scratch. And we can scratch this prematurely. This can come in the form of doing something. For example, if we've just interviewed for a new job, we're waiting to know, you know if we've been hired, or maybe we've just gone out on a date with someone and we're waiting to hear if they're interested in us, the best thing we can do is wait, both to be and look calm. But we get triggered by thoughts. Did I get that job? Do they like me? And that, impatient urges, that impatience urges us to scratch that itch. So we impulsively act. Maybe we call the person or we text or we send an email. And just like poison ivy, we might make that itch worse by scratching. So when that person doesn't respond, to our email or our text, you know, we our worry and our self-conscious minds go into overdrive. Oh no, you know, I blew it. Oh no, I, I look this way or that way. So where does mindfulness come in? Mindfulness is about seeing these processes in our minds and seeing them really clearly. Seeing those thoughts that trigger us as thoughts, noticing and being with emotions and feeling that feeling of impatience and that feeling of worry. Um, feeling and being with that urge to act even so that we can feel those sensations of, of those urges and those cravings as sensations rather than this moral imperative to do something. And all of this helps us learn that the result of not scratching is better than scratching itself as, as much as, as, as itchy as it might be. Mindfulness really helps us learn to be with our thoughts, learn to be with our emotions and those sensations instead of doing something to make them go away or somehow fix them. You know, my psychiatry training, I learned this really simple phrase. I love it. Don't just do something, sit there. Don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. So if my patient's suffering right in front of me, it's really important not to catch that social contagion and then try to scratch my own itch to make me feel better by jumping in and trying to fix them. That only makes things worse. And in these cases, being is the doing. By sitting there being with them and being with my own, my own emotions, I can actively and deeply listen to my patients and that's often the best medicine. So, you know, just being with uncertainty, knowing that our brains don't like uncertainty can be really helpful. Maybe we can just take a moment to pause and, and do another short mindfulness practice together just to let this sink in. Maybe we can even do a short meditation on uncertainty. Maybe just bring, you know, ground yourself in your present moment experience, whether it's your feet or your body or your breath. Just take a moment to do that. And respecting your own limits, if you can, just bring to mind something recent that feels, you know, that, that reminds you of the uncertainty 
of, of it all. This probably is not very hard to do. It could be right now just bringing to mind you know, the next month and how uncertain that is. Just notice what this uncertainty feels like. Where do you feel it in your body? And once you can locate it, see if you can get really curious. You know, Pilar mentioned curiosity earlier. Just see if you can notice and be curious. Huh, do I feel this more on the right side or the left side of my body? Do I feel it more in the front or in the back? See if you can use that simple question to awaken some curiosity in your experience right now, that attitudinal foundation of mindfulness, this awareness plus the attitude of kind curiosity. Hmm. Just exploring those sensations for a few moments. And then maybe take a moment to ask yourself, can I rest in this, you know, in this not knowing? Can I rest in simply being with these sensations and notice how my mind wants to know the answer? Can I hold that wanting in my awareness? Can I give that wanting space? And what's it like when I give it space? Maybe resting in a spacious awareness. We'll move on to the last piece of, of this, which is talking about how to help ourselves and others. And I've heard from a number of people who've pointed out how they feel really guilty for staying at home and not being out there on the front lines helping others. So I thought we could explore that for a bit, especially feelings of guilt and shame. So if we look at guilt, you know, guilt is about action. We do something that we feel guilty about. Shame is about ourselves. We feel shame and we feel like we're a bad person for something that we've done and maybe even imagine how others will perceive us. You can see how these go together. We do an action, we feel guilty. We look in the mirror or interpret what others are saying or might say and feel shame about who we are. These can also trigger self-judgmental habit loops. You know, guilt or shame trigger self-judgment as a mental behavior, which results in more shame. Hence the term many of you have heard, shame spiral. I'm guessing many of us can relate to this. So in fact, feelings like shame, if we think about this from a neuroscientific standpoint, these feelings can activate self-referential brain regions in this network called the default mode network. It's a network that gets activated when we feel guilty about the past or when we worry about the future. Shame also activates it because we think about ourselves and we feel that sunken, closed down feeling of shame. You know, my lab's even found that mindfulness meditation specifically deactivates this brain network that gets overactivated when we get caught in the past or the future or feeling ashamed. 
We found this in expert meditators. And even more recently, we found this with people who don't have any experience with mindfulness who want to quit smoking. You know, this, the default mode network gets activated when people get caught up in craving, especially craving cigarettes. And in a recent study we published last year, people who used app-based mindfulness training to quit smoking actually deactivated their default mode network in a dose-dependent manner. The more modules they completed of the app, the more they cut down on smoking. And the more their default mode network quieted down, the better they did. You know, it's interesting, the default mode network also gets activated with perseveration, which is just a fancy term for worrying about the future. And you can see how mindfulness would work here by helping people see their worry habit loops and not get caught up in them. We can all learn to see thoughts simply as thoughts. We can all learn to observe them and not get caught in trying to hold on to certain thoughts, maybe that are pleasant, or push away ones that are unpleasant. We can do the same with emotions. We can learn to be with difficult emotions like anxiety. With worry, this is really important because the more we get caught up in worry thinking as a mental behavior, the more it too can become a habit. For example, you know, anxiety can trigger worry, and that worry can feel like we're doing something. You know, even if we can't control the situation, we can control something in our mind because it feels like we're doing something by worrying. There's a lot of research uh, that, that shows that this is true, but uh, we can all see this in our own experience. You know? In fact, my lab's just finished two studies in which we looked to see if app-based mindfulness training could help people decrease these worry habit loops and anxiety. For example, in a randomized control trial of people with generalized anxiety disorder, I think of people with generalized anxiety as the Olympians of worry. Uh, we actually found a 63% reduction in anxiety with this mindfulness app, whereas the control group only reduced anxiety by about 15%. You know, in medicine, there's this term number needed to treat, which is basically a calculation that quickly helps clinicians figure out how effective a treatment is. For example, anti-anxiety medications, the number needed to treat is just over five, which means you have to treat about five people with a drug for one person to benefit. With app-based mindfulness training, it was only 1.6. And in a second study that was actually just published today, uh, we looked to see if mindfulness training could decrease anxiety in anxious physicians. And, you know, long story short, with this app-based mindfulness training, we got a 57% reduction in anxiety symptoms and a 50% reduction in certain burnout measures. And I think of this as really important today, um, even, bef even BC, before coronavirus, <laughs> Uh, we've seen an epidemic of physician burnout, in the, at least in the United States, and I'm guessing it's not limited to us. Uh, now things are getting even worse, so we need really effective treatments that can be disseminated widely uh, at, at low cost. And it's especially important for clinicians uh, to take care of themselves. You know, In medical school, I learned that we shouldn't waste time eating or sleeping or even going to the bathroom because we could be spending that time, you know, proverbially saving lives or literally, you know, do you ever see a doctor on television going to the bathroom? I, I never see that. So ironically, we can't help others if we're exhausted, if we're sick or if we're burnt out ourselves as healthcare providers. So it's imperative that all of us, whether we're healthcare providers or not, that we see self-care as care for others because it really is. You know, here taking the time to sleep and to exercise and to eat healthy food is critical. 
taking a few minutes each day to practice meditation or prayer or yoga or whatever builds our mental and spiritual fitness is equally important. You know, I, I think of these as, you know, essential elements uh, to help us all in these times. Now, I'll just finish by, you know, something that my lab's been studying for a while is, is reward-based learning. The best part of, of all of this is that awareness as the simple ingredient by, you know, that simply by seeing how rewarding it is to care for ourselves and others, not in a modern way, but genuinely tapping into how it feels to be kind, our brains will naturally move us in the direction of being kind to ourselves uh, and, and kind to others. You know, you can even compare this for yourself right now. What's it feel like to simply and even silently wish all of the healthcare workers out there safety? Just, let's just do that now together for a moment. And how, whatever way you wish or is most genuine for you, just wishing all of the healthcare workers out there safety. Yeah, to our brains, at least in my brain, it's a no-brainer. It, it, it feels much better than worrying about them being safe or worrying about loved ones being safe. You know, and I just want to highlight that here awareness is key. We learn to repeat behaviors based on how rewarding they are, not based on the behavior that itself. You know, by seeing how worry as a mental behavior shuts down our thinking brains, saps our energy. You know, awareness helps us become less excited to do that behavior, whether it's physical or mental in the future. And by seeing how sweet kindness is and how just really wonderful connection feels, we can help train our brains for these to become our new habits. You know, I'll, um, I'll just end by, there was this, there was this um, psychological concept that I learned in college called thaw shift refreeze. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. And you can think of this as an analogy of a, a leaf frozen in the ice in a pond. Now you can, uh, and what that leaf needs is, is energy. In the spring, the sun's rays warm it up and the, the temperature increases and that ice thaws out and that leaf can now shift. I think of us right now, collectively, all, all of us here in the world, as we are that leaf and this pandemic has actually been the energy that has thawed out this leaf. Now we have an opportunity to shift, right? Thaw, shift, refreeze. So this leaf can be blown by the winds. And I think of these winds of kindness and connection helping us shift from these old ways of, you know, separateness and, you know, racism, sexism, ageism, all these isms that we've been stuck in for so long, the more we can start to see really, really clearly how kindness and connection really feel better than you know, being separate, the more those winds will blow us to a different place. And my hope is, my, my genuine wish is that as we see this more and more clearly, as we do this individually and collectively, hopefully we can shift to a place where there's no going back. Even if we shift back a little bit, when this pandemic is over, that we'll all be in a place where we just can't imagine going back because our brain sees so clearly that being together and working together is the only way to move forward, both individually, 
both in our communities, both in our countries, and also as a world community. So I'll just end by, you know, just, just reminding us, you know, to set a habit, we have to pr practice a behavior. You know, there's this saying, short moments many times throughout the day. That's how you set a new habit. That's how we all set new habits. We can all practice this today, whether it's a short mindful pause to help us step out of a worry habit loop or a shame spiral, ground ourselves in the present moment, or by simply wishing someone well when we see them or when they come to mind. Short moments many times. And what I would challenge us all to do is to make kindness and connection that new infection um, so that we can all come out the other end in a better place collectively, a uh, much better place than when this all started. And I hope we can really move onward uh, together. So I'll stop there and maybe we can just take a moment to sit together in this collective community. And starting with ourselves, just check in. What's it like when I judge myself? What's it like when I don't take care of myself? Just so we can see that really clearly. And then, however we can, just offer ourselves, you know, a, a warm well wish. It can be, you know, sometimes it's helpful just to put our hand on our heart or our chest to give ourselves a warm embrace. But just offer ourselves some kindness, you know. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. Or whatever phrase resonates, just resting in that feeling of self-kindness. And then maybe extending this to everyone else here on the call together, all 442 of us. Just extending this kindness. May everyone here be happy. Or whatever phrases resonate best with you. May everyone here be healthy. May everyone care for themselves joyfully. At this point in the call, we uh, turned to a Q&A, and so to protect people's anonymity, I will be reading out the questions that were asked and uh, share Judd's response with you. The first question was around the definition of mindfulness, whether there might be multiple definitions and whether a definition from a psychiatrist point of view, uh, how that might differ. So, you know, mindfulness, has been defined many different ways. There are classic definitions. There's probably the one that, uh, that, that I've seen most commonly quoted is John Kabat-Zinn's, you know, paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So I think of mindfulness in pragmatic terms because it's, it can be, you know, it can be conceptually challenging. You know, what is mindfulness? So I really try to bring it into uh, concrete pragmatic terms. So awareness, you know, we can either be aware or not. And so there's this awareness element, but then there's this attitude 
of curiosity, of, of acceptance. And so, you know, as we bring awareness in, we can look to see, am I, you know, am I prejudging this? Am I assuming that something's going to happen even though I'm aware of it? Or am I really opening to this and being curious? And so I think of mindfulness as this awareness that's imbued with this attitude of curiosity. The next question was around uh, whether Judd thought there were any particular forms of meditation that were more suited to a situation like the one that we're currently living. My sense is this is more of a personalized medicine uh, approach, which is for us to find what we can tap into, what mindfulness practices we can tap into best for us right now. And also, if we have a number of practices in our tool belt, to be able to step back and ask, what is needed right now? So, you know, for example, uh, my patients, you know, if they're getting caught up in anxiety, uh, a breath awareness practice might be really helpful for them. But for some of them, you know, bringing awareness to their breath, they hold anxiety in their chest. So that's, that's actually pretty challenging. So those, you know, for those folks, I recommend that they, you know, just ground themselves in their feet. Pilar led us in that beautifully at the beginning, beginning of this. So just grounding ourselves in our feet because our feet don't hold anxiety. For others, you know, if there's a moment of feeling shame or guilt or self-judgment, that's when we can recognize that, oh, this is a, you know, this is a shame spiral. What's the antidote for that? Let me bring some loving kindness in specifically toward myself. So here I would say it really depends on the situation. You know, you can think of this, the parallel in medicine is, you know, if there's a specific um, bacteria that we need to know what the bacteria is so we can give the proper antibiotics. And we, if we just give some, you know, some generic um, uh, antibiotic, the bacteria might be uh, resistant to it and we're not helping and we're just perpetuating antibiotic resistance. In the same way, if we just bring in some generic mindfulness practice and we're not really seeing what, what our mind needs right now, it might bounce off where you know, we think, oh, I tried that and it didn't work. And then we become disenchanted with practice itself. So here I would say it's really important for us to take a moment to ask ourselves, you know, what is, what's my mind doing right now? And what's called for? Um, what's, and what practice is most helpful right now? And you know, often you know, the category of kindness uh, versus curiosity, those two general categories can be really helpful ones to begin with. And then, you know, we can bring in curiosity, we can bring in a grounding practice, we can bring in a body scan, or if there's, you know, if it relates to um, where kindness is needed, we can bring in a compassion practice or a kindness practice. The next question was about experiencing strong emotions and what to do when, when that happens. Um, I've, I've actually been trying to put out daily YouTube videos um, on, on my YouTube channel to talk about some of these things that, that we're commonly experiencing. And one of the things that I see a lot and am feeling myself is this is grief. And there's this term anticipatory grief. I, I specifically talked about that, I think, sometime last week, where, you know, it's, it, we're grieving loss. And that loss doesn't necessarily need to be right now. You know, we might... And, and it might be right now, you know, if we've lost, you know, if, if someone that we've known um, has died or if someone is sick, um, you know, that's, that's grief right now. If we're anticipating that we're going to lose, you know, we've all lost 
our our normal ways of life right now. I don't know anybody that that is living exactly the way they lived, you know, a month or two ago. So here, just being able to name, you know, the whether it's a stage of grief, being able to name that, or just name and um, kind of bring to mind bring awareness to what that emotion is helps us bring it out of the dark. So it's not something that's kind of, you know, jostling us and we don't know what it is, but bringing awareness in what can help us see, Oh, this is, you know, this is anger or this is sadness. And then like you're pointing out, mindfulness helps us learn to be with these things. You know, our habitual tendency when something is unpleasant is to push it away. Mindfulness helps us turn toward that and in, in paradoxically invite it in so that we can be with whatever these emotions are without reacting to them and without setting up habits that might, you know, that might not help us in the future. You know, a lot of folks um, eat because of anxiety and then they set up a habit loop around eating that's not helpful. If we can just learn to be with these emotions, let the tears stream, let ourselves go through the stages of grief that helps us be, you know, be genuine and human and authentic with our own emotions without adding, adding anything to it where, you know, that grief process needs to happen anyway without trying to suppress it. So, you know, perhaps as you're pointing out, whatever the emotions are, as long as we can, you know, and respecting our own boundaries, just be with those emotions, let them be there. That's what mindfulness really helps us do. In the next question, one of the participants asked Dr. Brewer if he could talk a bit more about habits. Yes, so, and I could talk for weeks about habits. Um, so certainly there are some, you know, some videos where I've given specific examples of habits on my, on my YouTube channel. Just last week, I think I talked about how uh, we can become addicted to the news. So if you think of a slot machine, as you know, uh, you don't know when you're going to win. It's called intermittent reinforcement, uh, meaning random rewards. So if you play the slot machine and then you win, you know, randomly, we can look at the news the same way. If we look at the news, um, we don't know when some big headline is going to hit. But right now, there are big headlines hitting pretty much every day. We just don't know when they're going to hit. So if we're constantly checking the news, we're actually setting ourselves up to potentially form the habit or even the addiction of you know being that news junkie. So from a general standpoint, you know, it, it habits are relatively straightforward. You know, these three elements that I mentioned, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And when we can just simply map out what those are, what's the trigger? And the trigger is the least important piece of the equation. What's the behavior? You know, mental behavior is included here. So we might stress eat as a physical behavior, we might worry as a mental behavior. And then what's the reward here? What's the result? This is where mindfulness is critical because seeing that cause and effect relationship, you know, if I'm stress eating, is that making me feel a little bit better? Is that distracting me from my emotion, in, you know, for a little while? But is it, is it actually helping the root cause of the problem? Generally not. So here mindfulness can help us see, okay, here's this habit loop. How am I relating to this? Is what I'm doing habitually helping, which helps our mind become disenchanted with the old behavior? And then it opens up the door for what I think of as the, the BBO, the bigger, better offer, where we can start to see, oh, can, can a curious awareness itself be that bigger, better offer? We've, my lab's even done studies of this where we embedded a, a craving tool in, in this Eat Right Now app where we have people 
pay attention as they're eating so that they can really clearly see how unrewarding it is to overeat or stress eat, which helps their brain starts to change that reward value um, of their old habit. Within 10 to 12 times of people doing this, we see a significant reduction of that reward value, even, even close to zero. Uh, so you know, it's, it's a relatively simple process. It's not necessarily easy to work with, but it's, it's simple, and the, the key ingredient here is, is awareness. Um, I, I put together a short animation on my website uh, if anybody, you know, that talks about the neuroscience of this. If anybody's interested, it's just drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D. Uh, so if, if you want to learn more about the neuroscience, I've got a, a short animation on reward value and then a longer animation uh, called uh, Everyday Addictions, where it talks about everything from buying things online uh, to, to other types of habits that we form because of modern day technology like this, uh, this thing that's really just a slot machine in our pocket that we pay for called a cell phone or a smartphone. It's smarter than we are. So I hope that gives you a little bit and there's, there's certainly more resources that you can take a look at to learn more. The final question of the session was around communicating about mindfulness in a corporate environment and especially to leaders and, uh, and engineers? It's a good question. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep this brief, but there's, I could probably speak for an hour on this. Um, one thing, and I'm also biased because I'm a scientist, but for, for researchers and, and engineers, at least the ones that I've worked with, uh, they love data. And so I think of this as you know, just show them the data and, and engineers love, I don't want to generalize, overgeneralize. I think we all love to know how our minds work. And I would guess that engineers also love to know how their minds work. And so, you know, I find it really helpful to start with, okay, let's understand, like I did today, you know, let's understand how our minds work and also help people really approach this from their own experience. So here, Looking to see, I think of this as pain points. You know, for at, when somebody's trying to market to somebody else, they'll they'll find a pain point, which comes from like if you have a knee pain, then you're more likely to buy a pain reliever because you've got pain. In the same way, if we go to a company or or anywhere, and you know somebody's saying, "Hey, I'd like some mindfulness," I find it really helpful to start by really trying to understand where they're coming from. Like, why? Why do you want mindfulness? What's what's paining you? You know, what's what, what is ailing you? And then that helps them be able to approach this from their own direct experience where I can then say, okay, let's, let's see what, you know, what are your habitual reactions to whatever that is that's ailing you? Is that working, right? So we can tap into this reward-based learning piece. Typically, if it's working, they're not calling you. But if they're, you know, if they're struggling with something like burnout or whatever, then that's why they call and say, hey, we'd like some help. So there's probably something there that you can explore. And then you know, see what these old habitual reactions are. Help them see how this might just be some, something that their brain is doing based on its survival mode and isn't helpful now. And then we can start to, to bring the mindful awareness in to help tap into that system itself. That's what I love about mindfulness is it, it literally taps into these old survival mechanisms to help our brains kind of unlearn these old habits. It's not about thinking our way into changing our behavior. It's literally about tapping into these oldest, the deepest, the strongest parts of our minds. And, and fortunately, what comes out on top? Curiosity, kindness, and connection, you know? Thank yeah. you. Thank I you think we're that. going to um, 
have to close questions for today. There's still a lot of great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to ask them. And thank you so much, Judd, for your wise, wise words. So I would like to offer a closing practice just before we finish off. And this is an invitation, so feel free to opt out or do anything else that you'd like to do. And so, yeah, perhaps just shifting posture for a moment and taking a couple of deep breaths. There's been a lot of sharing, a lot of knowledge, bringing attention to the body and just noting what it feels like to have shared in this way, to have connected. And I'll just invite you in a moment to place your hand, uh, kind of like Judd invited us earlier, somewhere that feels supportive. And I'll offer some suggestions and you're welcome to experiment and play around with me and see what, if anything, feels right for you at this moment. So you might like to place your hand on the top of your head or on your face, noticing what that feels like back of your neck, just right below where the skull begins, on your chest, your arm, kind of giving yourself a hug. Or you can just leave your hands cradled on your lap or place them on your thighs and just tune into what feels most supportive to you in this moment. And don't worry about choosing whatever you choose is right. I'm gonna go with hand on head, because I really like that. And just taking a moment, you can close your eyes or leave them open and just tune into the sensations of that point where your hand touches whatever part of the body you've chosen to practice with. Just really let your awareness soak up that sense of touch, sense of contact. And any sensations physical sensations that might be emerging, resting your awareness there. And in your own time, you can rest your hand. And so we come to the end of uh, this episode. We'll be back next week with more. I just wanted to thank everyone who joined us uh, this Wednesday with Dr. Brewer. Thank Dr. Brewer for his wisdom and also everyone who helps organize these sessions uh, at the OMC. Wishing you the best and looking forward to more next week.